that's the first thing to emphasize is take self-custody of the coins. You remove the single point of failure of the state. You remove the single point of failure of the exchange itself, the counterparty risk, and you remove the single point of failure of a thief withdrawing your coins, right? It's like, those are three huge risks. An 80% loss in fiat terms recovered in 18 months is nothing in comparison to a 100% loss permanently of the underlying, right? It's two very different kinds of risk. And unfortunately, we're bad at, at quantifying that second one because there's no warning to it, right? Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show the Bitcoin Philosophy Show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Pseudofin. And we're here today with Luke Broyles, who we spoke to way back when he first got on the scene. And so we're looking forward to an update from him, check in, see how he's doing. The big news that we know about is that he has joined the Bitcoin Advisor. And so we're going to hear all about that and uh, hopefully uh, a lot more. So Luke, welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show. Thank you for having me. This is a blast. We were just talking uh, before we started recording about how the last 11, 12 months or whatever has flown by. <laughs> so happy to be back. Yeah, it's been a weird year for you, I assume. Uh, you you uh, sort of came from, from out of nowhere and took the world by the Bitcoin world by storm. And uh, now it's a year later and uh, you keep on keep on storming. Thank you. Doing my best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so what what does an, a Bitcoin advisor do? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So as far as the question we're we'll talking about today, I, I think Bitcoin advisor stuff's really important. I'm glad you guys want to have me on to talk about it because, uh, yes, it's about the business. Yes, it's about promoting the business. But, you know, as you guys know, and hopefully people watching this understand is that Bitcoin custody is incredibly important. And as much as people in Bitcoin talk about it, I think it's still underappreciated. So uh, yeah, so so those those Dunworths, um, uh, Peter, Michael, um, Peter reached out to me in February of 2023. So actually, about the time we did our first podcast uh, together, uh, us three here, uh, you know, within those that couple week time frame, whatever. Peter uh, already reached out to me. At that point, the Bitcoin advisor um, was uh, not; he, they weren't pushing Bitcoin advisor as hard as they are now, but. Basically, the long story short is that Peter, over the last eight years, so since 2015, 2016 uh, or so, has been doing this company, uh, Net Worth Advisors and Bitcoin Advisors, uh, you know, been in the family office space for a couple decades. And so he started this company. And in the last year or so, at least what he's told me, and I agree with him, is that the last year, uh, really the last 12 months, is where multi-sig collateral custody is starting to shine. For me, on my end, I, I see that too. Obviously, not as much as he does, but that's why they're really starting to wrap it up. And so I, I was very fortunate to be one of the first that was invited to be a part of the team. And these last six, eight months, whatever it's been, uh, you know, probably longer by the time people are watching this, uh, it's been a whirlwind. And to your question of what we do, <laughs> I, I don't really know. <laughs> My family asked me, Luke, what do you do? And I'm like, I don't know. I, I go to Zoom and I do emails with my internet friends. And we talk about Bitcoin. I mean, that, that's pretty much it. It's it's just talking to people, right? It, it's um, emails, phone calls, uh, video calls, you know, a lot of networking, a lot of helping people. Basically, what we do is we handhold people through the process of setting up their vaults and their custody and and securing the Bitcoin. So it's it's really enjoyable because it's so focused on uh, people and solving really big problems in, you know, in custody and ultimately helping people have 
peace of mind. So yeah, that, that's pretty much what it consists of. And that's the story there. And it, it's a blast. Yeah, from what I know, there's been quite a bit of development in the multisig area with like there you can do more with them now, right? With the like one of the keys being a master key and there being like key key Merkle trees or whatever you call them. So so it, it's more programmable. I, I think I saw something in Miami with so, someone had a something that looked like the the programming language for kids, you know, Scratch. But with the Bitcoin multisig stuff, so you you could you do if and then and or uh, circuits with multisig stuff, uh, which looks really interesting. Do you know anything about that? I'm not sure if French is specifically, but um, yeah, there's a lot of development um, in the space, a lot of new products. So um, yeah, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Have you heard anything about that, Luke? Yeah, no, the the multisig stuff intrigues me. I, I mean, I, as far as we've we've heard about it, we actually we spoke to Peter before the Bitcoin Advisor came up, but there was a little bit we dug into this stuff a little bit for sure. Uh, but so so I think it's it's great to to check in now after. I think you are actually the the first official Bitcoin Advisor we've had on since that since it launched. So. Yeah, the, I I really like the the space of this multisig, uh, these multisig services. Uh, there's a whole bunch, right? Like Unchained, Nunchuck, others that won't be named or that I can't remember. But like, I, I guess I guess the idea, right, is that it it helps users key manage w- without having to to manage all of their keys, but still get the benefits of multisig, right? Isn't isn't that the idea? And then and then you guys come in to to walk users through the process and and also help to to safeguard the multisig, right? That's the idea. Yeah, yeah, correct. So you know, I, I, again, I, I think it's really important for people, especially those that are trying to take their Bitcoin custody the next step or wanting to buy more Bitcoin, take their allocation the next step. Like, I think this is super important because most people, when they look at Bitcoin, they're scared about Bitcoin volatility, let's say, and that's uh, comparatively that's a very small risk. In in my view, uh, compared to the custody risk, right? So if we want to think of Bitcoin from risk allocators' perspective, you know, let's say we have this much risk that is due to Bitcoin volatility, right? What if Bitcoin crashes 50, 70, 80 percent and doesn't recover in price for two years, right? You know, what about my cash flows or my portfolio, whatever, right? That might be like this much risk, right? But then the vast majority of risk, at least in my view and Peter's view, and really what I think should be everyone's view, the vast majority of risk is actually custody. Right. And, and unfortunately, that, that's human beings as, uh, you know, and this is a, an insult to anyone, but it's true for me too. Uh, you know, human beings, we have a hard time adjusting risk tolerances. We have a hard time uh, properly accounting for that risk. And uh, unfortunately, I think most Bitcoiners don't realize the, the risk, right? We all like to focus on fiat price and the volatility of fiat price, right? Like we're recording this Bitcoin's down 5%, uh, you know, in the last 48 hours or whatever. I mean, you know, so it's no, always it's going up, up and down. Well, it, well, it's up again, it's right? Up, it's 44. <laughs> there, there we go, right? Proving my point. You know, we always focus on the fiat price. Uh, you know, right now, Bitcoin's at $44,000. Yesterday, it was down to 40K after crashing. But, you know, every day it goes up, uh, down a few percent. So this is the risk we think of. But people aren't thinking about that risk, right? And so, you know, Luke, to your point, that that's, that is the basic idea, correct? Is that the the... The beauty of Bitcoin is that it removes the single point of failure from base layer currency itself, right? So, you know, 
the Federal Reserve is the single point of failure for the U.S. dollar, right? And every time we want to debase the dollar, bail out banks, or pass some sort of stimulus, war, whatever, uh, we just exploit that single point of failure, right? That's the double spend problem. And so that's the exciting thing with Bitcoin is that it solved that single point of failure. But now, building on top of that, the new question that has to be kind of for is, if the money itself has solved for the single point of failure, how are you going to solve for a single point of failure in your custody model, right? And so, funny enough, this is one of the reasons, you know, I'll, I'll first differentiate between exchanges and then self-custody. Obviously, with exchanges, as we all know, and people get tired of me for shouting, uh, as you guys, I, I'm sure here too, it, from, from all the um, critics, is, you know, don't keep your Bitcoin on exchanges, right? Get your Bitcoin off exchanges. If you have Bitcoin on exchanges, you don't really own Bitcoin at your extreme risk, right? And this is precisely why, right? If you, you know, the Bitcoin itself doesn't have a single point of failure, but if you're trusting Coinbase Bitcoin or ETF Bitcoin or FTX Bitcoin or BlockFi Bitcoin, you know, you have a new single point of failure that is the counterparty risk of said exchange. And additionally, you also have the single point of failure of a security breach to that counterparty risk too. And this is something I think most people don't factor in. But if you have, let's say, a Coinbase or Binance account, even if that exchange survives for the next 10 years, let's say, I mean, it, unfortunately, you know, I do a lot of these calls and unfortunately a, a decent number of people, you know, have some sort of, I, you know, have their identity stolen or emails hacked or password, you know, people, to, not to be too blunt, but typically the people that have their Bitcoin on exchanges, uh, unfortunately, are typically the people that don't have their account security, particularly down solid. Um, and so unfortunately that happens, um, painfully frequently where someone gets someone's, it, it, you know, some nefarious person gets someone's, um, exchange info and they just drain their account. They drain their exchange, right? So there are multiple single points of failure. You know, additionally, obviously then you have the nation state that said exchanges in, right? You have the CZ, you know, CZ, you know, whatever the 4 billion, some crazy number lawsuit for Binance recently, you know, with CZ, the guy who at one point was like, you know, free from, you know, government agents running around or whatever. But, you know, point is that that's the difference between non-custodial Bitcoin, Bitcoin, obviously, hopefully everyone watching this and everyone that's a fan of yours understands that. But it, it is disturbing that there's a lot of people that don't get that, right? Which I guess shouldn't be a surprise because perpetually in Bitcoin with the next bench curve, there's perpetually a large percentage of people that are very new as in the last six to 18 months. You know, so for a lot of people, that is a new message. But you know, that, that's that's the first thing to emphasize, I guess, is take self-custody of the coins, you remove the single point of failure of the state, you remove the single point of failure of uh, of the exchange itself, the counterparty risk, and you remove the single point of failure of a thief withdrawing your coins, right? It's like, those are three huge risks. You know, again, an 80% loss in fiat terms recovered in 18 months is nothing in comparison to a 100% loss permanently of, of the underlying, right? It, it's too very different kinds of risk. And unfortunately, we're bad at, at um, quantifying that second one because there's no warning to it, right? With fiat price, you see it every 12 hours or every 30 minutes when you refresh your phone. But we don't think about a thief breaking into our Binance or Coinbase account until it's already happened. And we don't think about um, an FTX collapse until it's already happened, right? I mean, you know, I I wasn't on, on YouTube or, or Twitter at the time warning people about FTX publicly, but I was on various, you know, uh, uh, discords, channels, and, and, you know, sub discussions elsewhere on the internet. And I was warning people about FTX before it went under. And, you know, people said it was crazy because 
you know, and I don't know what your experience is, but I remember with the FTX stuff, they're like, Luke, stop being so paranoid, stop being a fear monger, stop spreading FUD, you know, you know, people like you are the problem, blah, 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 like stop, you know, putting a whole dampen on the industry, quote unquote, whatever the heck that means, <laughs> you know, because it's like, oh, FTX is regulated, it's the second largest exchange, it's safe, it's fine. And it, it's funny because, you know, I, I'm bullish because of the Bitcoin ETF, but in many ways, I think it's the same way, right? I mean, even if 90% of the Bitcoin ETFs survive the next 20 years, like, I don't want to take a 10% chance of my generational wealth disappearing, right? And so it, it's like, Obviously, I'm bullish on the Bitcoin ETF. You know, when we're recording this, ETF's not been approved yet. Maybe it will be. Maybe it won't be by the time people are watching us. Whatever the case, whether it is or isn't, it, it's irrelevant. When it is approved, you know, or, or when it is mainstream, you know, reality is, in my view, I don't think even that's tolerable. Even though it's the best form of paper Bitcoin, quote unquote, you know, it's just a bit of reality that there is decades of history of ETFs, you know, for gold, silver, and other commodities being manipulated. Again, FTX was the tightest with the SEC and the regulators, and that didn't turn out particularly well. And it was astonishingly uh, bad because, you know, they had like no Bitcoin, right? It wasn't a minor insolvency. It was like complete total debauchery. Um, so, you know, I, I guess that's kind of my perspective there, right? Is that I, I don't know what your opinions would be, but my opinion is that upcoming cycles uh, the the boom bust of upcoming cycles in large part I think will be from the Trojan horse that is the Bitcoin ETF, the incoming liquidity and demand for Bitcoin via the ETF, more traditional finance means, and then of course obviously a portion of those will be rug pulled, maybe partially, maybe entirely, maybe all of them rug pulled. You know I don't know, but to me it's basically like a roulette, right? And even if the odds are ninety percent in your favor with the ETFs and these paper Bitcoins, it's like to me it's just not justifiable. Right. And so anyway, all that to say is with that said, then the question is, if you understand Bitcoin roots, single point of failure for the currency, and if you understand, don't keep it on exchange because that's a single point of failure for custody. Then the question is, okay, counterparty risk is not excusable from a capital allocation perspective. So now how do we self custody in the safest way possible? And that's where collateral custody multi-sig comes in. Basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to be an easy onboarding route for new Bitcoiners, as well as hardcore Bitcoiners like us alike, you know, basically diverting demand away from paper Bitcoin to real Bitcoin um, with, with very, very uh, reasonable value proposition. So, yeah, that's the idea. Yeah, uh, couldn't agree more. I mean, another way to say risk management is just responsibility. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. I mean... If I look back at my past, when I was the captain of a boat, uh, for instance, then uh, that's risk management. That's all it is. Like you're taking responsibility for this thing, for taking it from place A to place B uh, or port A to port B. And everything that happens in between, you have to take different kinds of risks into account and uh, account for them all and weigh them against one another. What's more risky and what's less risky. And I think this not your keys, not your coins goes so much deeper than people understand. So so all this ETF stuff and all the paper Bitcoin stuff, this is transitory. This is between now and hyper-Bitcoinization. It's a phase. It's true that it will attract a ton of uh, normal money, quote-unquote normal money to, to Bitcoin. But at the same time, it it's, it's sort of puts Bitcoin in the spotlight. And uh, Bitcoin will steal the show because 
because Bitcoin 200xing now from 50k dollars to uh, to a million is cer- certainly going to raise some eyebrows. 10 I million. <laughs> yeah. no, 10 million. Yeah, yeah. 2000x then. Or uh, am I doing the maths wrong again, Luke? Yeah, I am, right? There's one, a, one a 200x zero. is 10 million. A 2000x yeah, would 10 be 100 million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So <laughs> a 20x would be t- 1 million and a, and a 200x would be 10 million. Um, and regardless of which one it is, it's going to attract a lot of ice. Uh, and here, here's a fun thing to think about. And it's like, what does that imply? What does it mean for your average Bitcoiner? What will happen to, like, it has happened before, but on a much smaller scale. It's, it's one thing to go from, you know, a hundred to a thousand dollars or two hundred dollars to seventeen thousand dollars, but going from fifty thousand to ten million is a diff- different story altogether. Like every time this happens, it's on a, an order of magnitude. It, the the network is an order of magnitude larger, right? So I guess that's a fun topic to explore. What what happens the next time around? Like say say the Bitcoin is, let's pick a low number. Say the Bitcoin is at one million dollars a coin. What does that mean for Bitcoin oriented politicians? What does it mean for hardware wallet manufacturers? What does it mean for the exchanges? I know they're running out of coins already. Uh, the sad squeeze is real. I mean. What's your view on this? Yeah, I think, well, you mentioned the politicians. Start with that. I think the horse and locomotive metaphor, I probably said on your show before, but uh, to give us, well, actually, maybe I didn't. But anyway, to give a different take on that, you know, typically when I talk about the horse and locomotive metaphor, it's about like, you can't understand system the system, right? It's very much like the Jeff Booth idea, right? But I think, I think the, big wave for Bitcoin adoption after, you know, ETF and traditional finance, you know, kind of embraces it, you know, for, for a little while before they get rug pulled from it once or twice. Uh, I, I really think it's the electric grid, right? I mean, the, just the stories, you know, I, I talked to some of the guys plugging in Bitcoin, you know, to flare methane. I've talked to, um, um, Eric over, uh, you know, doing incredible work over in Africa with, with the small projects there. And it's just like, I look at that and, in the same way, the Bitcoin ETF is kind of like the Bitcoin Trojan horse for Wall Street adopting Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin or the, the, the implications of Bitcoin on the electric grid and power generation is like the Trojan horse for nation states, right? Uh, you know, and it's actually the main reason I think a nation state attack on Bitcoin in, in a couple of years, I think it's going to be pretty low, probably. That's just my guess. But I think that's going to be because of the integration of it into the, the grid, right? So I think. I think that is lost on people. You know, most, most people are still thinking of it as money or number go up stuff, but they're not really thinking about it from that perspective, right? It's like looking at the locomotive and saying, oh, wow, I finally understand the locomotive. It's going to be a big deal compared to the horse because, you know, it, it's, you can go 30 miles, uh, you know, faster, right? But they're completely missing that. No, there's, it, it's all, the locomotives, that's true, but it's also a big deal because now you can move. 50 times the goods for, you know, a third the cost or whatever, right? Or now you can move a bunch of cannons and and men in uniform a lot faster than the front lines, right? In large part, that's why here in the United States, where I am, you know, it's a huge part of why the North won the Civil War over, over the Confederacy, over the South, right? Obviously, there's a lot of factors there. But one of the main ones is that the North had much better manufacturing and much better locomotives, right? We could move men to the front lines uh, a lot faster than the South, right? And so I think in the same way that the locomotive 
people resist it at first, but then they realize, you know, if we don't build this train thing, of you know, I don't get it, but if we don't spend a bunch of money on it really quickly, uh, our enemies are going to, and they're going to dominate us, and we're going to no longer have the option to build a locomotive because we won't exist as a nation state, right? And so as much as, you know, both you and I and probably many people watching are not in uh, huge fans of the state, you know, I, I think that is a reality. That it's a transition point, right? And I think that, you know, states and large corporations will adopt it and integrate into the electric grid if it makes their cash flows better, if it reduces expenses, if it improves, therefore, their share price, stock price, you know, gets their CEOs or whomever, uh, you know, more benefits, get the, gets the politicians, their, their districts, more jobs. I mean, I think they're going to be in favor of that for their electric grids. And then I think it's going to be a kind of a new form of, you know, space race, essentially, except into the digital world. So, you know, I mean, a million dollar Bitcoin, that's only a 20x, right? Um, from here, I mean, the ETFs potentially alone, theoretically could push Bitcoin to a million dollars. And then people forget about, like what I'm saying, the electric grid. It's like that, you know. Like, don't even think about that until a million dollar Bitcoin. And then once it's a million dollar Bitcoin, the whole integration of the electric grid thing, that's a huge deal for number go up, right? Because that's more and more energy backing it. That's more and more money printed to subsidize said as much as I'm against printing money. Like, that's just game theory what they will do, right? Like, if, if we have a slightly, the, we could tolerate a slightly higher inflation rate from a policy perspective. Again, not that I support it, but I think nation states will realize, you know, we can tolerate a slightly higher inflation rate to raise more capital, you know, deploy more printed dollars and, and have more debt and use that printed fiat money, you know, scam money, political currency to support a Bitcoin infrastructure. That's kind of like the Michael Saylor strategy, right? You know, basically make our stock weaker, but ultimately the Bitcoin we're backing that with, you know, kind of makes up for that, right? And so that that's kind of the infinite money loop, right? It, it, instead of Saylor buying $5 billion of Bitcoin over the course of three years, you know, what if you have three different nation states each deploying $5 billion a week, right, into Bitcoin and Bitcoin infrastructure, right? That might sound like a lot of money to people listening, but hey, if you can make $5 billion out of nothing, I mean, you know, and, and you're a politician that's looking to preserve your own self-interest, I mean, in the same way that, yeah, anyway, that, that's just my thought of what that next step looks like. I, I know that there's a, there's a bit of a dilemma here with um, pro-Bitcoin, so quote-unquote, Pro Bitcoin politicians, because uh, if if a pro Bitcoin politician should win in every country, then that's sort of the guy who decides what Bitcoin is. <laughs> and so Bitcoin sorts of sort of needs to be somewhat illegal or somewhat shady and somewhat because otherwise it's not the separation of money and state, is it? It's it's just more of the same. So you have, yeah, you may have a state that is better than the state right now, but it's still someone telling you that uh, I'm going to allow you to run your node. Like, yeah. fuck you. Like, that's the whole <laughs> point of the node is to not be not have to give a crap about allowance being allowed this or being allowed that. That's the whole point of the network in the first place. And I think there's some... There's really something deep to that, that it needs to be that way. It needs to be this rebellious thing in order for it to ever separate anything from anything. Because you can't, uh, you can't have both, really. Yeah, right. I, I agree with that. I mean, like Bitcoin doesn't need politicians, right? I mean, shoot, with the China ban in, in mid-2021, you know, they banned 
what was it, roughly uh, 30% of uh, Bitcoin's, you know, hash rate, basically, you know, the huge crash in hash rate, the biggest one in the last five years, right? Network recovered in like four months, which is remarkable, by the way. But it's like, I think that proves your point, right? Is that Bitcoin doesn't need these politicians. And, you know, it, it's often yeah, one of the things. That's yeah. an example of, yeah. of politicians that were against Bitcoin. But I'm worried about the pro-Bitcoin yes, politicians. Yes. Like, there's a, it's a different attack vector, uh, but there is a risk there too. I mean, it's, it's sort of, sort of ties into this, uh, uh, spam debate now with the, uh, the, uh, ordinals and, uh, all this crap that is like people paying to, to clog up the blockchain. The problem seems to be solved for the moment. I mean, the, the fees are down again. I guess they're going to run out of money, but, but, there are like it's it's anti fragile, but it's also very delicate. Like it relies on Bitcoiners being doing the work and and being vigilant and staying not being passive uh, in defending it and and keeping it real. <laughs> to use an ology term. Yeah, no, I I I just want to say I agree with that. You know that I think the more Clickable or the more commonly understood attack vector are politicians negative towards Bitcoin, you know, but I agree with you. I think politicians positive towards Bitcoin can be a threat as well, right? I think I, I, for me, I, I take peace of mind though, knowing that a, a politician opting out, a, a person in politics opting out a political currency and opting towards a political currency though, um, even if they increase their influence within. Bitcoin, you know, by being a voice, quote unquote, in the space or having, you know, a following, you know, I, I think net net, it actually gives them less kinetic and forceful power over people because they're abandoning, you know, the political sense, right? So like, you know, Bukele, I think is probably the prime example of this, right? I'm generally, you know, a fan of Bukele, right? But at the same time, that doesn't mean that I support everything he's done. And that doesn't mean that I think he's infallible and, you know, clearly the thing can change, right? I mean, I've never met Bukele, but, you know, I've spent some time with um, um, Max Kaiser and, and Stacy, you know, where they talked about him a lot, obviously. And, you know, that, that's one thing to think about is that comparing him to the other politicians of Latin America, it's like, arguably, he's more powerful than the other politicians of Latin America because his approval ratings are just so crazy high. And, you know, people love him, you know, and, and perhaps to a dangerous degree, right? This is the attack vector you're talking about. I, I guess I kind of forced myself to be the optimist in that, you know, the president of Venezuela has like total control dictatorship over the country because they control the money. They debase on their, you know, population all the time. Venezuela hyperinflation, right? One of the most famous examples of the century so far. So when I look forward, it seems Bukele is only going to have more and more influence, you know, even if he leaves politics, you know, his voice and reputation will have a higher influence especially as Bitcoin vindicates him and shows that he was right, you know, but then the Venezuelan president or other, you know, um, leaders of, of the region, like I just see their influence declining. Right. So, so anyway, I, I think you're right. I, I think it is a potential attack vector. You know, I, I don't know if one is preferable over the other, but I think both are inevitable. You know, like, I don't think it's that we can stop it. I mean, there will be pro, there will be anti-Bitcoin politicians. That's going to be inevitable. And I think there will be very pro Bitcoin politicians both of those have their trade-offs, um, and I think it's just a matter of case by case being diligent. Yeah, yeah. And the beauty here is that regardless, uh, it's still a Trojan horse. 
it will still r- give them less power over time, less and less power over time as the for our grandchildren and so on. So so it's still it it acts as the Trojan horse with the pro guy and with the uh, against Bitcoin guy. All right. You might have noticed that we've recently partnered with Amber App. After our episode with Izzy, their CEO and our close friend, we knew we would have to partner with them in some way. If you haven't seen our episode with Izzy, definitely go check it out. You'll see why it's such a great fit. And honestly, they're following the orange glowing light like Izzy always says. And that's exactly what we try to do here at the Freedom Footprint Show. The big news about Amber App is that they're going to be launching their version 2.0. I've seen some of the screenshots and it looks fantastic. They're going to be including a non-custodial on-chain wallet, an anonymous lightning wallet, a fiat wallet, and finally, it's going to be an exchange, of course. It's going to be just this super app. They're also going to be launching globally. Everyone's going to be able to use it. We're really excited about all that. Stay tuned with us and you'll hear all about it. And for now, check out their website, amber.app, and the episode with Izzy to find out more. Yeah, what else happens when Bitcoin reaches a million dollars? Like, I, is, that, um, is that a point where we don't see cycles anymore? We just have number go up constantly? Like, is, is, that, uh, is that that cycle? Is the, is the million dollar Bitcoin price what triggers hyper-Bitcoinization in a real sense? Or, or is that too bullish? I, I don't know. I think it might be too bearish. I mean, like, really, you know, I mean, it's like there's what 1.8 million Bitcoin on exchanges. There's 60 million millionaires. So if one in 30 of those millionaires, aka 2 million of them, decide they want one Bitcoin, today recording this video, it's $44,000 US. So, you know, a 5% allocation for a millionaire is one Bitcoin. I mean, if one in 30 millionaires, once a 5% allocation, aka they want to get to one Bitcoin, that's a major unit bias psychological level. I mean, that's all of them, right? I, that's that's crazy to think about. Like that's only, that that's not even 3% of the world's millionaires, right? Then factor in all the people that their unit bias level they want is not one Bitcoin, it's a million sats, right? I mean, yes, it's only 1% of the Bitcoin, but there's well over a hundred times that many people, right? And, you know, they, they may not be able to allocate it as fast because unlike a millionaire, you know, maybe they have less disposable assets or less assets liquid. But, you know, all those cash flows, all those assets, I mean, it's just, it like, I just look at the numbers and the Bitcoin on exchanges and it's like crazy. Just small percentages of people taking small percentages drains it completely, right? You know, like what if, you know, like I just said, one in 30 millionaires wanting uh, one Bitcoin a 5% allocation, okay? But what if it's a smaller number, right? What if it's not one in 30, but one in 60 billionaires running a 10% allocation? It's the same math, right? Or what if it's one in 120 millionaires running a 20% allocation, right? Is a 20% Bitcoin allocation crazy? It may sound crazy to people now, but it, it, yeah, I, I don't think it is. But I think easily one in 120 millionaires will say, I want a 20% allocation. So factor in the one in 120 wanting a 20% allocation, plus the one in 60 wanting a 10% allocation, plus the the one in 30 wanting a 5% allocation. You know, now we're talking about one in, you know, now like one in 31, right? So still like probably not even uh, um, 3% of millionaires, but yet that's three times the total supply of Bitcoin exchanges, right? I mean, obviously as they buy it and they force price up, that's going to change. But, you know, in principle, like I just look at that and I think you know, it's just... Coins and exchanges, they're not enough, you know, and that's just the millionaires, right? You know, then you have the billionaires like Sailor, 
you know, uh, when we're recording this, Sailor um, a few weeks ago announced that MicroStrategy is buying another $600 million of Bitcoin. And then he announced, firstly, he's going to sell $200 million of MicroStrategy stock, roughly speaking, and and acquire $3.4 million of Bitcoin. Per day. Know, <laughs> yeah, per day, based on market <laughs> fluctuation, right? Which is crazy. Yeah. It, it, I mean, with the halving in April 2024, there's only $20 million of Bitcoin issued per day at Bitcoin's current price, right? 450 Bitcoin a day. I mean... That's like, okay, Sailor alone is like a sixth of all the Bitcoin minted on the day. It's crazy, yeah. crazy math. Let, let me fill in the blanks here. So yeah, the yeah please do. Most people don't know this, but the difference between a billion and a million is about a billion. Like the, the million <laughs> is so small in comparison to the billion. So you can just don't worry about that million. So a billionaire is a very different thing from a, a millionaire. Right. Uh, and also, uh, these first 15 years, like Bitcoin is 15 years old. As we as we speak, Bitcoin is 15 years and one day old. Uh, and during these first 15 uh, years, we've mined 93% of the total supply that will ever exist. Over the next 15 years, we'll mine 6% six, 6 more. So, <laughs> uh, and from that point, from that point on, until the last Satoshi is mined, we'll mine the last percent. So like over the next 15 years, 6%. So comparing the, these first 15 years to, to these next 15 years, it's just way off because of the, the immense sat squeeze. And also like the, the sats on exchanges, half of them have been sold the last six months. And now Sailor is trying to buy every day, like 3 million. Like, and, <laughs> and add to that everything else that you just said. Like the, the supply and demand curves are just, it's a it's a train crash. Uh, it, it it just can't go anywhere but completely bonkers. It's not number go up anymore. It's number explode. You make a great point. I love the way you said that. That the difference between a million and a billion is pretty much a billion. <laughs> you know, a, a million's you know uh, what tenth of a percent. It is. Billion, People so, don't know yeah. this, but it yeah. it is. Yeah, well, they don't the think of it that way. The difference between a trillion and a billion is the same thing. It's about a trillion. Right. And, and that's why people say, oh, well, Bitcoin can't go to, you know, $10 million or $100 million because, you know, that's just so many zeros. So you don't understand orders of magnitude. You don't understand how much money that would take, Luke. But it's like, yes, I know that's an absurd amount of market cap to be added to Bitcoin, but there's an absurd amount of demand coming and there's an absurd amount of sats flowing out of exchanges, right? So it's like you have an exponential rising amount of capital with an exponentially decreasing amount of stats. So my, my point being that right now at the time of recording, every 90, 96 seconds, one Bitcoin's added to the network, right? But with the last Bitcoin taking 35 years, that's a third of a century, right? That's globally. And that's a third of a century, far more prosperous than ours, right? So right now we're recording this, you know, before 2025, so we have well over three quarters of the 21st century to go and all that technological progress. And then you have the early 2022nd century, right? With all that progress, innovation or whatever is going to happen then, you know, we can't even fathom yet. My point being that while we get caught up in, oh, Bitcoin to a million dollars, Bitcoin to a hundred million dollars, Bitcoin to a trillion dollars, right? Reality is that if we assume Bitcoin is going to survive for a long period of time, then we should assume that eventually that all of this global Bitcoin mining, that all of these politicians, all of these governments, all of these, you know, individuals, people, companies, everyday folks, you know, independent node runners, you know, all these people are going to be chasing that last one Bitcoin 
in the early 20, 22nd century, right? Like there could be, you know, maybe seven, eight, nine billion people on Bitcoin network in a hundred years, right? You know, who knows? I'm just guessing, but there could be billions of people for basically an entire working career, AKA a third of a century far more prosperous than ours chasing one Bitcoin, right? So it's like, for me, way more than the, oh, get to one Bitcoin because it's a round number. It's like, get to one Bitcoin because the last one's going to take 35 years. So even if it takes you 35 years to get one Bitcoin, like just go for it because you're, you know, the, the kids born, you know, your grandkids, you know, they won't, they won't be able to get one Bitcoin. There's no way. You're not going to single-handedly have, uh, you know, a third of the century's, uh, you know, mining rewards yourself, right? This is not going to be possible or feasible, right? So, um, and then, of course, once that finishes in 2140, then the only direction is down as far as balances, right? Globally, as coins get lost. Yeah, and this is also why Bitcoin is not gold 2.0. It's so different from gold. Like, so imagine it's a pretty good deal to be able to buy, uh, say you buy one unit of uh, worth of the world's total gold mining for 35 years, starting the year 2,105. Uh, uh, 105, exactly. So the year 2105, the equivalent of all the gold mining in the world for 35 years starting at that point, that is what one Bitcoin is the equivalent of now which is also weird because it's it's not even that is bullish enough and i'll tell you why it's because gold was a good uh store of value and a good uh, like money because it uh, as technologies moved forward and and things became cheaper and cheaper gold mining became more and more efficient so more gold was found per time unit so the prices were relatively stable this is not true for Bitcoin, <laughs> because as, as hashing technology gets better, the Bitcoins don't get found faster. Like that, that doesn't happen. That's why we have the difficulty adjustment algorithm. So it's even better than that. It's even better than owning the gold. Because, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's so weird and so hard to wrap your head around, but it's definitely not gold 2.0. Um, the, by the way, isn't it the, this next halving that uh, Bitcoin's uh, inflation is actually lower than gold or, or its stock to flow ratio? Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's stock to flow ratio. You know, I, I would say it's less so Bitcoin inflation more like Bitcoin issuance. But um, but yeah, yeah, the, the stock to flow uh, officially goes under gold the cycle, right? You know, I, I think, no. you know, it's, to, to your forever. point about, yeah, forever, indefinitely to zero. Yeah. I think most people look back at this conversation, right? You see, people today look at us, you know, normal people look at us Bitcoiners and they say, oh, they're crazy. They're comparing Bitcoin to gold. That's so stupid. That's so idiotic. Gold's real money, blah, blah, blah. You know, so everyone hates the Bitcoin to gold metaphor today for that reason, right? The thing is too optimistic. But yeah, to your it's point, the opposite. yeah, but <laughs> into your point, it's the opposite. Like we're in this 20 to 30 year window where people think the Bitcoin to gold metaphor is stupid because gold is obviously better. But then that's going to be dwarfed by the many, many decades, if not centuries, you know, from the, you know, 2040s, 2050s onwards, where people are like, why are you comparing gold to Bitcoin? They're entirely different, right? It, it's the same, it's the same thing with the horse and locomotive, right? It's like, if you were to just be plopped in the middle of our current time in the 21st century, why would you compare the horse and locomotive? It's like, okay, like, like that seems no different than comparing a car to a goat, 
I mean, it's like, it makes no logical sense if you don't have the historical context, right? Like the, the metaphor makes no sense. It's the iron horse, but you know, it, it's just, it's an analogy for ancient people trying to get up to the modern era, right? Like the horse locomotive metaphor makes sense in the 1820s, 50s, 90s, early 1900s, even maybe. Now it doesn't make any sense, right? It's going to be the same thing with Bitcoin. Like the gold Bitcoin metaphor is not going to make sense to my grandkids. And it's not, it doesn't make sense to our peers today, but for two very different reasons. And I think that's funny to think about and appreciate is that we're in this narrow window where the metaphor kind of works, right? We can actually compare Bitcoin stock to flow to gold and people, some people get what we're saying, but the majority now don't like it. The majority of the future don't like it, but you know, Hey, for those with ears, you know, hopefully they'll listen. So the thing I don't like about the horse to, uh, to a locomotive metaphor is that it's it, the, the horse and the locomotive are somewhat too similar. The, the, the locomotive is better than the horse. It's faster and takes more people, but it's not orders of magnitude faster. Uh, you know what I mean? So it's, it's more like if you compare communications technologies, you would compare a runestone to TikTok or something like that's, that's more. <laughs> That's more accurate. accurate. How much? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, or uh, a skateboard to the the Starship Enterprise or something like. That. <laughs> uh, You're right. You're right. Yeah, it's so much more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Perhaps I don't have the numbers off. You know, I don't have the numbers to back this up, but I I would easily guess that the locomotive makes transport orders of magnitude more cost efficient. But you you know, as far as speed, yeah, all yeah, that goes. It, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the reason I like that metaphor, though, is less so, you know, this is the beauty of metaphors, right? All models are wrong, but some are useful. All metaphors are wrong, but some are useful. But the reason I like that metaphor, the reason I always bring it up is because, like, we often forget how recent that was, right? Like, that was barely 200 years ago. I mean, that's 200 years is nothing on the grand scheme of history. And you know, that's like three or four, maybe five generations ago for most people. I mean, you know, like like my my grandmother's in her 90s and, you know, her mom was in the wagon days. Right. And like she remembers stories of her mom telling, you know, from from that. Right. I mean, because she was old and her mom had her late. You know, it's just it, it's incredible to think about. But like my family being an instance and maybe some people watching, you know, they know extended family, whatever. But it's like there are people still alive that had a direct personal relationship with people alive at the time of, you know, Napoleon and, 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 you know, the pre-horse, pre-look, uh, pre-automobile um, era. Like, it's just, it, it's so recent. And yet there's been so much technological change. We just forget that's the case. Right. And to me, that's why talking about Bitcoin is so important is that, yes, it's about hopefully everyone watching this is buying Bitcoin, adopting Bitcoin, but it's also about what's the next adoption curve behind Bitcoin, right? Next after Bitcoin, because whatever that adoption curve is, in my guess, it, I mean, I, I think probably anyone that's looking at technology from that futuristic perspective, the Bitcoin adoption curve is much faster than the internet's, and whatever's up to Bitcoin, I think, is going to be much faster than the Bitcoin adoption curve, right? Now, that gets into cloud or custody multisig, which is a big part of why I joined Bitcoin Advisor, you know, I, I kind of tying that back into the conversation is, you know, I think that's an adoption curve way faster than what anyone is expecting, right? Is, you know, basically, it's custody innovation within the adoption curve of Bitcoin. So meaning it's like an even more hyperbolic adoption curve, right? But again, that's the general point that for people looking to buy Bitcoin and then adjust to the technology of the future is that 
that's the trade-off. The trade-off for endless prosperity flowing at us into larger orders of magnitude is that the adoption curves are going to get steeper, things are going to get outdated much faster, and keeping up with technology is a much more urgent thing, right? I mean, everything's a trade-off. That's the trade-off of having faster innovation forever, is that you have faster innovation forever. So, um, yeah. anyway, that's why I like that metaphor uh, of the locomotive. Um, and back to this, the, the, like the time perspective, uh, this was in the news just the last week about that the president, John Tyler, born in 1790, has a grandson who's still still alive today. Correct. So that's grandson. The first. <laughs> grandson. Yeah, grandson. Yeah, so that's two generations away. So like uh, the US is just a handful of generations old. Which is which is so weird when you think about like the Santa Maria and Columbus uh, sailing across the Atlantic into the vast nothingness, you know, and hoping to find India and stuff. Uh, that's just a handful of generations. So so try to try to predict the future five generations from now. Like it's impossible, especially since everything goes exponentially faster every year. Uh, so so it's it's just uh, yeah crazy when you think about it and how how close in time these things are and i think the transitioning from you know horses to cars that was like a, a decade or two that's that's all the time it took and that's way 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 before internets or even fucking telephones proper telephones so yeah imagine that uh, things can happen very fast which has positive and negative consequences right you know uh, at, at new year's 24, 24 new year's there was a famous video of the Arc de Triomphe at the, uh, you know, in Paris, of everyone holding up their cell phone recording the fireworks, right? Many of you probably watching early 2024 have seen this video. It kind of went viral. Yeah, yeah I saw that. Yeah, but, you know, I, I, it's, it's you know, this whole, you know, going back to my the first thread I, I ever wrote um, on, on online, basically an article, you know, Twitter thread, uh, was about this idea that we have less to come with the future in the past, right? It's like that, you know, that structure in Paris has been there for, you know, hundreds of years, and, you know, people, you know, just would walk around never with a screen to their face for centuries. And now all of a sudden, here we are, last 10 years, we've had the smartphone revolution. And, you know, now everyone just holds up a little blue screen, right? And so it's all, all these adoption curves are going to have, a, I, I think, are going to have a lot of, a lot of positive implications, a lot of negative externalities. Hopefully the positive ones outweigh the negative ones, you know, 10 to 1. But, you know, I think people... I, I think the heart of Bitcoiners is to be thinking with that forward mindset because we know we can't predict it, right? And that's why Bitcoin number go up is the only futurist quote unquote thing I I, I like to predict, quote unquote predict, because it's like whatever the said innovation is, like, you know, I have no idea, you have no idea, everyone watching, you know, we have no clue. But whatever that innovation is, if Bitcoin survives and it has the most Lindy effect, you know, it's going to be what we denominate those innovations in, right? So it's kind of like the meme, the, the bell adoption curve, right? Where the person over here, the quote unquote low IQ is Bitcoin number go up forever. Yeah, yeah. The 80 yeah. IQ. <laughs> and then over yeah, here, the, absolutely. you know, whatever, the, the 150 IQ or the 200 IQ guy is, is like number go up forever because it's like whatever the innovation is, you know, it, it's foolish to predict what the innovation is going to be. You know, you can't predict the internet when, you know, in 1903, when the Wright brothers first take off, right? It's like, you can't do it. Um, or probably a better example is like, okay, 1903, we met the airplane. 
1945, we drop bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki from a, a B-52, right? And then you have landing on the moon in, in the 60s. And now you have other space stuff. I mean, it's just like, that's crazy. You know, and so I think it's nonsensical to guess what the innovation is going to be. But if that innovation is going to occur and if Bitcoin survives, then Bitcoin's going to denominate it, right? Yeah. It should have been the other way around. They should have faked the faked the 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 atomic bombs and actually right. landed on the moon. Like that would have been better for the world, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're gonna choose faking one of them, you know, fake the war, right? But you know, I'm Unfortunately, when the guns are out, you actually have to do the real thing, right? You can't you can't fake it in war; otherwise, your bluff will be called. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, you could just have some some charming person go to uh, go to Hiroshima and pay everyone to say that we're bombed. Like that would have been way better for everyone. Maybe cheaper. <laughs> Maybe cheaper. Uh, yeah. yeah. Like like really like like n- nuclear fission and fusion. It's like okay, we discovered that now we have nuclear energy and now we have a nuclear bomb. It's like same thing with smartphones. It's like we could record a podcast anywhere in the world with these devices, or we could miss the moment being perpetually plugged in, right? And these adoption curves are going to get faster. It's like, yeah, the, about yeah. missing the moment, though. The, what it does is that it gives us a, an accurate, very to play the devil's advocate. There, it gives uh, the Ar- Arc de Triomphe. Uh, it, it gives humanity a memory of what that looked like exactly and from all different angles like uh, it's it's very easy to re- reconstruct that thing should it ever be bombed in the future now that we have such a good record of it yeah precisely it, it's not yeah it's not entirely negative you know i, I guess that's just kind of the nuance I, I'm, I'm trying to say is that it's like a mix of both right the, the angle here that i have on like uh, i i think like technologies and and scientific breakthroughs and and stuff they're they're never good or bad in their in themselves what makes them bad is when the incentives are aligned uh, misaligned so that psychopaths get to use their what they're used for you know which which the atomic bomb is a perfect example of i mean that technology is very powerful and it could have been used for good instead it was used for blowing innocent people up and uh, some not so innocent but still blowing way too many people up and that's the thing. It's back to praxeology again, and and the resources being misallocated because of theft. Uh, that's that's what's create what creates the the bad incentives, and that's why, you know, science and technology gets a bad name because it ha- ends up in the hands of the wrong people. So that's what we have to fix, and that's what Bitcoin fixes in my mind, and that's that's why I'm so optimistic about it. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great perspective. You know that that's why Bitcoin survives is because as long as it remains outside the control of human beings, where we can't con- distort, manipulate, or debase its supply, um, you know, then as long as that happens to where it can't, then inherently it can't fall into good hands, quote unquote, and it can't fall into bad hands because you know then there's no ability, right? So I mean, like for me, that's that's the Achilles heel. Uh, a Bitcoin, you know, I mean, if Bitcoin's a Trojan horse, I guess, you know, that's like too bad force of uh, the same thing. But, you know, like if, if the Achilles heel, if there's an Achilles heel for Bitcoin, to me, that's it, right? It's, it's good people, quote unquote, or any people getting control of it. Because if good people can control Bitcoin, or let's say, you know, well-intentioned people could control Bitcoin, then inherently people with bad incentives or misaligned incentives inherently will also be able to control it. Right. So, you know, that that's 
to me, that's that's why the case for Bitcoin as an apolitical money is so important. You know, it has to be out of control of everyone to ensure it's out of control of of the bad actors. Of anyone, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it has to be control of everyone in order for to prevent it to be uh, controlled by someone. Next up, Wasabi Wallet, the privacy by default, open source, non-custodial Bitcoin wallet with CoinJoin built in. It's the easy to use, comprehensive, affordable way to make your coins private. And the best part is they've been making huge improvements to the app. They're really focusing on the user experience, adding advanced features for power users. They just keep getting better. You send your coins to your Wasabi wallet and they get combined with loads of other coins using the Wabi Sabi protocol, so they're private on the other end. Your tracks are covered, so you can work on expanding your freedom footprint without worrying about your privacy. So check out wasabiwallet.io and download Wasabi today. Our newest sponsor is Geyser. They are the portal to the creator economy on Bitcoin. On Geyser, creators can monetize their work through their communities in a social and engaging way and supporters can send sats to their favorite projects. Geyser has also recently integrated with Zaps and Podcasting 2.0, so every Zap sent to a Geyser address shows up on the Geyser page. We have a Geyser fund ourselves. It's the best way to support our show directly with Bitcoin. So whether you're a creator or a supporter, check out Geyser at geyser.fund today. Hey, so so Luke, I just wanted to, to check because we, we started going down the rabbit holes here pretty quickly. Was there anything else that you wanted to... to say about the Bitcoin advisor stuff you have going on? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I, the with it actually ties in quite nicely what we were just talking about. You know, I, I think the whole we have less in common with the future in the past idea, I think is true here too, right? I think even within Bitcoin, we have less in common with the near future of Bitcoin than the quote unquote distant past of Bitcoin, right? And then that future probably is less common with that future and that future, right? So, you know, if we look at Bitcoin's history, Bitcoin's 15 years old now um, at the time of recording, and if we look at Bitcoin's history, the vast majority of Bitcoin's time has been like single sig adoption, right? It's people having, you know, one set of 12 words or 24 words to back their Bitcoin, right? I, I genuinely think that, you know, the next wave of Bitcoin adoption is primarily going to be multi-sig and specifically platter custom multi-sig. Uh, you know, hopefully people have zero single point of failures in those setups. Uh, and then I think the wave after that is, you know, the layer two mass adoption, uh, you know, the daily payments, you know, those kinds of things for, for people, right? You know, because not everyone's going to be able to afford layer one transactions. That That's an inherent reality and in, in trade-off, right? And so I think, I, I think the days we're in right now for Bitcoin, I think these are like ancient days. Like, I think these are like, you know, ancient Roman days in Bitcoin story. You know, the, the old days where individuals would hold UTXOs, like whole UTXOs individually, and they would, quote unquote, so carelessly have them on, you know, single SIGs, right? Like, I think that's going to be a foreign idea in the future, right? And it makes sense that we've already lost millions of more Bitcoin, or excuse me, we've already lost millions of Bitcoin, you know, four to six million or whatever the last 10, 15 years. I think we'll probably lose at least another million Bitcoin in the future, uh, you know, the mid future, um, not even the far future. But, you know, I, I think that's important for people to keep in mind is that, we're currently at, you know, one in a thousand people adopting Bitcoin, right? Maybe a tenth of a percent or so, maybe, maybe double that, you know, I mean, if you really want to get bullish, um, but to get from today to the next 50 X in Bitcoin adoption, like the vast majority of those people, I think are going to opt for multi-sig and, and specifically clatter custody multi-sig, right? If, if you're a company or a bank or, or, you know, a family trust or, or, you know, you have Bitcoin, in your retirement accounts, like, 
really your only options are Bitcoin ETF or aka paper Bitcoin or real Bitcoin in some sort of management solution right like that, right? I mean, you can't have single sig Bitcoin in a Roth IRA. You can't have single sig Bitcoin in a pension fund. You can't have it uh, on the nation state level, you know, in that single sig, right? I mean, and so, you know, obviously there's a lot of nuance and all those things I'm not, not going to get into, but you know, that's reality that people are going to want Bitcoin, you know, as much as, you know, we may say, oh, be independent and don't have Bitcoin in your retirement accounts, blah, blah, blah. You know, reality is that, you know, those millionaires, like I mentioned earlier, they're going to want at least some of their Bitcoin exposure to be within those accounts. And those accounts and the integration of Bitcoin into traditional finance inherently is going to be in various forms of multi-sig. And again, specifically collateral custody multi-sig arrangements, right? And so, you know, I say all this to emphasize, I think Bitcoiners need to prepare for that because again, number one problem with Bitcoin is education. Number two problem is custody, right? And this is perhaps the biggest change in Bitcoin custody I think we've seen to date. There have been multiple big changes already, but I think it's going to be very dramatic and I think it's going to be a very steep adoption curve, uh, you know, and those are the three options for Bitcoin custody, right? You have custodial Bitcoin, you know, paper Bitcoin, which again, I don't think is excusable besides extremely rare, you know, niche circumstances maybe, because again, I don't want to take you know, like you were saying earlier, you're, you were boat captain, right? It's like, I don't want to go out on the boat. If I think, yeah, yeah, I think there's a 90% chance we'll make back to port today, right? It's like, it makes no sense, right? It's like, okay, yeah, sure, that's good odds, but I don't want my doctor to say, yeah, there's a 95% chance that you'll, you know, you'll make it through surgery, wake up again, right? And like with the ETF, it's like, people aren't, people right now will tolerate Bitcoin ETF and Bitcoin exchanges and paper Bitcoin because they don't understand Bitcoin. And they don't understand the bullishness of Bitcoin. They don't really, people hold Bitcoin on exchanges because they think it's going to 100,000, not 100 million. If people understood Bitcoin's going to 100 million, they would never hold Bitcoin on exchange, right? Because that's illogical. Uh, you know, so point is, as people begin to realize this isn't an option, they're going to realize self-custody is the only way. With single SIG, um, it has great advantages, it has great uses. Uh, there, there are trade-offs though. The same thing with multi-SIG that's self-directed. And the same thing with uh, multi-sig and collateral custody. Um, so really at the Bitcoin Advisor, what we help people do is we help people adopt collateral custody multi-sig that uh, from a loss mitigation perspective, our goal is to help people prevent losing their Bitcoin. You know, been in business eight years. Not a single Satoshi has been lost. Peter's very proud of that. Everyone on the team is very proud of that. I mean, no, and we deal with people very experienced, uh, people that are very new, People with very large amounts of Bitcoin, people with, you know, orders of magnitude, less or more Bitcoin, right? You know, we deal with all networks from all demographics, all age ranges, you know, every, every, you know, factor of diversity you can think of. And, you know, despite all that, you know, not a single client has ever lost a single sat due to death, due to uh, someone stealing it from them, theft, uh, or lost keys. You know, basically, we're guardrails, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're like a buffer for helping people have security adopting it. And so for the people that are still stuck on exchanges, they're like, dang it, I've still got my Bitcoin on exchanges, or I think I'm diversified because I have my Bitcoin on different exchanges, right? It's like, you know, for those people, Bitcoin Advisor is a massive value add and a massive service because we can say, yes, we know you're still on exchanges. Yes, it's okay. No shame. You know, we know you're not doing it because you're scared of losing your Bitcoin if you take those keys. You know, let us help you 
take those keys, take self-custody in a cloud custody format to where even if you make a mistake, you know, we can work together and make sure that you're taking things slow at your pace to where your Bitcoin is um, recoverable, right? Basically helping people take that next step of, as you put very well earlier, responsibility, um, you know, and then from the optimistic perspective too, ultimately, really the Bitcoin advisor, the main value add we're going to add to people is not charging a small fee on Bitcoin at $44,000 US. That's not the real business model for us. The, the real goal is help people get through the chasm of the next five years, keep Bitcoin secure, help them not lose their Bitcoin, not to um, improper UTXO management, not to scams, not to theft, not to losing their own keys, not to death, not for any reason, don't lose a single sat, you know, getting through this adoption phrase. And then on the other side, when Bitcoin has uh, traditional finance adoption, institutional adoption, you know, the real value add for us as a company, you know, where we're going to have by far um, the biggest benefits and likewise, where our clients can have the biggest benefits is in that future when people want to borrow. Right now, it's controversial. and Right now, I would not recommend it. But eventually, there are going to be a lot of people that do want to borrow um, against their Bitcoin. They do want to borrow fiat against their Bitcoin. You know, just a small percentage, they're going to want to borrow live off of it, right? Or they're going to want to time lock their Bitcoin. Or they're going to want to have Bitcoin's collateral for, variance for uh, a bunch of different insurance possibilities, right? So, you know, basically incorporating Bitcoin into that space is going to take a very long time and it, you know it's not ready yet but eventually when that does happen what are banks going to want what are people going to want what are companies going to want they're going to want to work with clients to have a collateral custody arrangement with the co- the, the company on the planet that has the single longest track record of providing collateral custody multi-sig options with the longest standing perfect record of a zero sat failure rate Right. And so I, I'm very confident that is Bitcoin Advisor. You know, we've been a pioneer in the estate planning space, helping people, you know, protect their Bitcoin for their kids or grandkids. Um, you know, we've been a huge uh, bringer of peace of mind for people that are like, hey, I've got X coins. I've got 100% allocation of single SIG. And my wife or my kid or my nephew or my whomever doesn't understand how to act. Like, if I died today, my loved ones probably couldn't get my Bitcoin. Right. And so they realized, you know, I probably should have a 50% exposure to collateral custody multi-sig with the Bitcoin advisor, where I know even if I die, I lose the other half, or even if I screw it up and I lose the other half, or I lose my memory, I'm in a car accident. You know, like basically, yeah, I need it. We're leaving the ancient world where we diversify between assets to protect our wealth. And I think we're entering the modern world where we don't diversify in the asset we hold. It's only Bitcoin. But we do diversify custody, right? And so I, I think that's the future. I think all of us watching this, all of us in this conversation, everyone watching this, I think we're all, you know, beginning to see that transition. Companies begin to enter the space, get into multi-sig, VASB accounting rules. That's a big deal we didn't even get into, but both for number go up as well as for custody and multi-sig options. But um, yeah, that, that that's essentially what we do at Bitcoin Advisor. And I, I really love the work. It's really rewarding. Um, and And frankly... The fastest way to buy more Bitcoin is to, in my belief, the fastest way to buy more Bitcoin is to secure your custody, right? I mean, again, this much risk is Bitcoin volatility. This much risk is your custody. Like, it, it, it's a funny thing I see with clients. At first, they, you know, they, they book a call with me or, or they consider it and they're like, yeah, you guys are expensive. I don't know if they need it or whatever. Then eventually they try it. They try it. And within like a matter of weeks or months, they realize, oh my goodness, you guys are cheap because I just realized that 
I can buy so much more Bitcoin. I can actually justify a higher allocation because now like 80% of my risk was just eliminated, right? Because now, okay, if a criminal, you know, with a single SIG, you know, if a criminal, you know, let's say I have one Bitcoin, aka 35 years of the 22nd century, um, on a single SIG device in my house, if someone breaks in my house and takes those 12 words, and then leaves, I don't know they broke in, like in 20 years, they could steal my Bitcoin, right? And so for, for our clients, when they have a greater peace of mind when it comes to the Bitcoin exposure, they end up on their own desire, quickly increasing their allocation, um, especially if spouses or family members don't have the peace of mind that the client themselves does. You know, it gets families on the same page, it brings peace of mind. Uh, you know, the spouse, or the loved ones has the comfort knowing that, okay, if something were to happen to him or something were to happen to, to their coins that, you know, the kids are going to be covered or whatever, right? That brings peace of mind, justifies how Bitcoin allocations. And and funny enough, the vast majority of our clients, like well over 90%, once they join, like they begin increasing their stack because now they can justify it, right? So um, anyway, to, to the point with aligning incentives, that is what is so rewarding with this job to me. It doesn't feel like a job, right? Like I'm working all day, every day on it, but it doesn't feel like it because almost every person I'm on a call with, that's a client, is just so grateful for the service because it gives them peace of mind, helps them sleep better, better for their health. Uh, they can go out and instead of spending 500 hours trying to learn all the nuances with, with self-custody, they simply can have a voice along with them, guiding them, answering any questions they want, you know, giving them as much information as they can so the person can, if they want, verify on, a, on their own. But, you know, point being is that people want to the point of Bitcoin's optionality. People want to have Bitcoin so they can do what they want with their life. And so for people having the option of knowing that, okay, good, I don't have to choose between single SIG where I think I'm going to screw it up and fake ETF, but I can do a collateral custody arrangement, you know, and an estate plan for, you know, if I pass on or, you know, if if I'm not capable of managing these keys anymore. So uh, yes, yeah, so, so, I, so I said a lot there. Um, it's very funny. Most Bitcoiners don't understand this yet. Uh, you know, I, I really am pounding the table on this very hard, uh, you know, in my videos and everything I'm doing. And yes, that is in my own self-interest working at working at the company, right? But I'm also doing it because I really want Bitcoiners to start thinking about this, right? Because again, we're at one in a thousand people adopting Bitcoin, you know, maybe 0.1%. Like, you know, maybe Bitcoiners today don't realize how important multi-sig is, or again, collateral custody multi-sig. But the majority of the next 100x adoption, the majority of that next 10% are going are going to want this, right? And so, you know, the Bitcoin advisor has the longest track record. Uh, we have a very impressive team, in my opinion, global team, very decentralized team. Um, I, we have a model. I don't believe anyone is a rival of in, on the planet because every other multi-sig offering is a product. We are a service, fundamentally different. Um, but my, my point is that even if the Bitcoin advisor increases by a factor of 10 or 20 in the next you know, couple of years, like, it's still going to be a very difficult hill to climb because the demand may go up 20x at minimum, maybe more like 50 to 100x, right? You know, the, the, the companies are just starting, the high net worth individuals are just starting um, you know, the, the, the OGs, you know, if you've got, you know, 50 coins, 50 coins at $50,000 of bitcoins, very different than 50 coins at, you know, a million dollars, right? And so for people that are wanting to protect against 
theft or death or loss, I, I think this is going to be a very large value prop. And I think the value proposition increases exponentially as the value of Bitcoin increases exponentially. And so, um, yeah, so that's what we do. I, I'm really proud of the work we do. I think Peter's brilliant because um, he's consistently, he, he, in my experience, knowing him the last year, he's been consistently ahead of the curve. Um, and to me, it, it's, it, it's really fulfilling. So yeah, if people want to check it out, our website has lots of free resources. If they want to put in the 500 hours and do it on their own for free, or obviously they can book a call and, you know, pay for a service to, you know, have us walk them through it. So that's, that, that's, that's the pitch. That's what we do. And it's a blast. Yeah. I, th I think we're going to the like, subscribe and brush your teeth part, right? <laughs> sort of, but, but, uh, well, did, did you want to ask our, our new last question? Oh yeah. Luke, this is, uh, besides from working with the Bitcoin advisor, what are you doing personally to increase your freedom footprint on the world? Oh, that's a good one. My freedom footprint on the world? Well, I, I'm doing a lot of traveling. I'm going to Costa Rica, and, and this is related. I've gone to Costa Rica in like 10 days for Bitcoin Jungle, and then I'm going to South Africa. Then I'm going to Guatemala, and then, you know, a, a couple other countries later in the year, you know, hopefully Madeira, Portugal, and, and Prague, and, and obviously, you know, Canadian Bitcoin Conference that's like just north of me. But I, I, I say that to say that uh, one of those trips, especially the trip to Guatemala, um, is not particularly Bitcoin related. That one is, is installing stoves for locals there, you know, for them, you know, most of them cook over open flame. And so cooking over an enclosed um, stove with an actual, you know, chimney or, or pipes that gets smoke out of the house. That's like a really big deal, right? It's the fastest way, you know, for many of these watermelons, the single fastest way to reduce smoke inhalation and therefore various forms of cancers. Um, the fastest way to give the, the wives and mothers, uh, less time chopping wood and more time educating the kids, you know, basic education, you know, it, is this because it's more efficient for firewood. That means less jungle that's being cut down, more time to educate the kids, uh, you know, less health problems, right? Better calories because you can cook more food because you can have the fire going for longer, right? So, uh, you know, the, the whole mantra of increasing freedom and increasing energy abundance and increasing uh, energy freedom, uh, I think it's important in all aspects. Bitcoin's an incredible tool. It's not the only tool we need, but it's it's a very imperative tool at having as much energy possible per capita around the world. And that's what's so fulfilling about going to all these conferences, seeing how energy abundance is being manifested and created in different ways um, in each different place, right? I was just in El Salvador. I'm sure Costa Rica is going to be very different than El Salvador, right? And I'm sure South Africa would be different. Guatemala is very different. So um, yeah, anyway, yeah. So I, I guess what I'm doing to increase my footprint is just making videos, content, and hopefully inspiring people to increase energy abundance. Excellent. Uh, and yeah, final question. Where, where is, did you have anything else you want to add? Where can, where can we send your people to online if they want to dig into more Luke Broil stuff? Yeah, I, I'm on the platform formerly known as Twitter, um, currently known as X. <laughs> uh, I, I'm on there. You can follow me there or subscribe on my YouTube channel. You know, most important though is obviously Bitcoin Advisor. You can find me, you can email me, uh, Luke at the Bitcoin Advisor.com. Or you can find me on the Bitcoin Advisors website. They can book a free call with me. We can talk through their custody 
and how I believe we could improve it, make it more secure and help them buy more Bitcoin. So yeah, Twitter, YouTube or Bitcoin Advisor. Excellent. <laughs> this has been the Freedom Footprint Show. Uh, over to you, Luke. Well, you just said you just <laughs> said what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, th thanks a lot, Luke. This has been fantastic. And uh, yeah, like, subscribe, brush your teeth. This has been the Freedom Footprint Show. Thanks for listening.